Welcome back to True Crime Trine. It's a podcast where the planets align, three friends chat true crime, astrology, and any other weird bullshit we could fit into this podcast. We are your hosts, Hannah, Sarah, and Meredith. Welcome to episode 49. 4-9. 4-9, good sir. I have a little bit of housekeeping. First, I'm just going to throw out some birthdays. <laughs> I don't want to miss anyone. So my stepdad, March 7th. My brother-in-law, March 10th. My stepbrother, Jesus. March 13th. My dad, March 21st. And my niece, March 30th. So happy wow. birthday to all of my family that all insist on having birthdays in March. March is a big month. A lot of Pisces and some Aries. I actually hit, I actually just hit the fly <gasps> with my hand and I don't know where it went, but it crashed into the wall and then fell behind my desk. He's not doing very well this fly, so. <laughs> Sarah just concussed a fly. <laughs> yeah, with her bare hands. I should try the chopstick thing. Oh, yeah. From the Karate Kid, yeah. Mr. Miyagi? Mm-hmm. Mr. Miyagi. Get it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there used to be a cat game. Hannah, do you remember this cat game? You collect the cats. Nico Asumo? Yes. And they actually had a Mr. Miyagi. Do you oh, remember him? Oh, they did. Oh, yeah, I do. It was oh, so man. cute. This little app on your phone. You collected cats and you would, could buy little you toys. You put, like, food and toys out and stuff. To attract the different cats. And then you took a little picture of the cat. It was super cute. I really liked yeah. it. Yeah. I probably awesome. said the name wrong. It's Nico at something or other. But <laughs> Nico means cat in Japanese? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Neko. Well, I'm white. I think it's Neko. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Miyagi had like a little katana and everything. Yeah, and he, he, was, he was like one of the special cats. Neko Atsumi. Okay. Awesome. And then we're also welcoming South Africa. Oh, all right. Hello. Greetings. Maybe it's Elon Musk. Greetings. If it is, fuck you. But if not, hi, South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that is all I had for housekeeping. Okay, we need to get some more Australian listeners because of our Australian episode. And then what I'm going to bring... In a couple weeks, it's going to be an English serial killer. So for our English pals. Yes. <laughs> Mates. Mates? Mates? I feel like that's more Australia. I know. My English. Australia. People. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> what country does your crime take place in, Meredith? It's yours, right? The United States. Ah, right. good old USA. What did we do this time? Well, I said that I was going to do cases from states in which we still are looking for listeners so we could get that collective 50. And so I was going to take us to Louisiana, but <laughs> I got sidetracked. All right. <laughs> what can I say? I'm a Gemini. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. And the reason is because I was watching some old school Unsolved Mysteries, and I will always be enchanted by Mr. Robert Stack. He could literally turn a nursery rhyme into a crime. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a talent. It is. I can't do a Robert Stack voice, but I just envision him being like, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. (laughs) Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. (laughs) Or did he? Join us for this Unsolved Mystery. So instead of going to Louisiana, this week we are headed to Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville is not, not a small town. Okay. (laughs) It currently has over 210,000 residents. It is the seat for Cumberland County and located in Fayetteville is Fort Bragg and Pope Army Airfield. And this is home to the 18th Airborne Corps and the 82nd Airborne Division, the U.S. Army Special Operations Command, and the U.S. Army Parachute Team, known as the Golden Knights. And this is just northwest of Fayetteville, and Fort Bragg was founded on September 4th of 1918. It's approximately 251 square miles, which is pretty big. Wow. And it serves as home for over 54,000 military personnel personnel. So this is one of the largest military bases in the world. Okay. And 
I looked at a lot of pictures of Fayetteville and it looks like a pretty cool town. It looks kind of cute, yeah. But I was doing some Reddit dives and according to multiple Reddit users, Uh people who live in Fayetteville call it Fayetnam. I'll leave it at that. Oh my goodness. God, I love it when they get a really good name for their town though. Uh Uh-huh. Because that (laughs) just tells you, Fayetnam, you got it. You know it. Right. Yeah. Say no more. And Fayetteville is a city that is rich in history, and on one particular day, May 29th of 1831, it burnt to the ground. Oh my goodness. That Sunday afternoon, a fire had broken out in the center of town. It started in a kitchen in a house on the northwest corner of Market Square. Winds gusted and embers blew to the wooden rooftops of the nearby buildings, and it devastated over 600 buildings in the town of Fayetteville. All of the churches in the town were destroyed, except for the Methodist Church. Those again. Again. They're a very popular denomination. And I only bring this up because we've been a little tough on Methodists, so... They just keep coming up. They could have a win. And then for Sarah, our crazy cat and plant lady, Fayetteville is home to the Cape Fear Botanical Gardens, and it's situated on an impressive 80 acres between the Cape Fear River and the Cross River, which is just two miles outside of Fayetteville, and it is a very beautiful and picturesque retreat. And then if you're sketching tonight, the North Carolina state flower is the flowering dogwood. I'm already on it. <laughs> I've got two petals down. You said like right. North Carolina and Sarah was like, do, 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 do. I got this. So tonight I have for you the mysterious death of Debbie Wolf. Ooh. Okay. There isn't a ton of information on Debbie's childhood, but she was born on June 19th of 1957 in Blytheville, Arkansas to Jerry Wolf and bear with me. Virginia Vernon Wolf Edwards. What a name. Yeah. Virginia went by Jenny. So for the rest of the story, we got Jenny. And Debbie had three brothers, Pete, Joseph, and John. And I think they were a military family from what I could surmise. And eventually the Wolf family would end up in Fayetteville. Jenny and Jerry divorced at some point, And then Jenny would later remarry a retired army sergeant, John Edwards. And Jenny also owned a local bar in Fayetteville called The Pub. The Pub. All right. Not creative, but sounds fun. It sounds like a place I would enjoy. I'll go there. Yeah. I love dive bars. The pub. It's, it gets it the across. Mm-hmm. And Debbie, 28 at the time, was a nurse at the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Fayetteville. And according to her family and friends and co-workers, Debbie was cheerful, she was happy, and she had a notorious sense of humor. She loved to laugh and have a good time. And her sense of humor was very apparent when it came to gift giving because she loved to surprise her mom with naughty novelties. <laughs> like blow-up dolls, not oh the God. ones Here you go, from Mom. episode 23. Wow. Cheaper ones. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Cheaper ones. And on her mom's 50th birthday, she hired a stripper for her. Hot damn. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> wow. On the list of things I would never do for my mom. I might do that for my mom. <laughs> Maybe Pearl. That sounds really funny. Yeah. <laughs> She's just, like, having, like, a nice, I don't know, backyard gathering with her lady friends, having some, like, white wine in the afternoon, and, like, just the stripper with his little boombox comes in. Hell yeah. (laughs) Debbie lived alone in a small cabin just outside Fayetteville with her two dogs, Mason and Morgan. Ah, that's cute. Isn't it? I did quite a bit of research to try to find out what kind of dogs these were, but I was not successful. Uh, The important questions, though. I know, right? The cabin was quite isolated. It sat about 325 feet off the road and was surrounded by tall pines. And there was a pond just behind the home. All in all, it sounds like quite a peaceful place to live. However, when I Google mapped it, it seems like this area has been developed Mm. a lot since the 80s. So So we're going to start on Christmas Day of 1985, and Debbie spent time with her family, and it was that typical fun family Christmas filled with love and laughter, and it was a beautiful day, according to Debbie's family. 
The following day on Thursday, December 26th of 1985, Debbie worked her normal shift at the VA hospital. Coworkers recounted that Debbie brought in this large stuffed unicorn that her mom had given her for a Christmas gift. So her and her mom give each other fun gifts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty cute. Yeah. It sounds like they had a really good relationship. Debbie also had lunch with her co-worker, Roger Rushing, and they made plans to have lunch together again the next day. She called her mom around 3.30 p.m. to discuss some ideas for her sister-in-law's upcoming birthday, and her shift ended at 4 p.m., and several volunteers and co-workers confirmed that Debbie had left the hospital at this time. Everyone assumed that Debbie was headed straight home to care for her dogs, but sadly, this would be the last time Debbie was seen alive. Hmm. On Friday, December 27th of 1985, Debbie was supposed to report to her shift at the VA hospital at 8 a.m., but she didn't show up. Coworkers became concerned because this was not typical for Debbie. She would generally call if she was even going to be just a few minutes late. So Jenny was also trying to call Debbie at home, and all of her calls went unanswered. There was some conflicting information about whether or not Jenny went to the cabin initially. Some reports say she did. Other reports say that she sent her husband, John, and a family friend named Kevin Gordon to go. I kind of believe that as a mother, Jenny would have wanted to see everything with her own eyes, but that's just kind of my opinion. Hmm. Either way, the group arrived at Debbie's cabin, and in the driveway was Debbie's 1975 Pontiac. It was not parked in the usual spot, though. Christmas presents were still inside the car, and even more unsettling was the fact that the seat was pushed all the way back. Debbie was only 5'3", so Mm. there would be no need for the seat to be that far back. So in tall... Mm-hmm. Jenny would later tell investigators that Debbie never moved the seat back and forth because the lever kind of stuck, and so it was kind of a pain in the ass to actually move back and forth. There's no need if you're the only one driving it, too. Like. Exactly. Upon further investigation, the group found beer cans, like, strewn all over the yard. Debbie was known to be a very neat and tidy person, so she wasn't the type of person to leave garbage just lying around, especially because of her dogs as well. She wouldn't want them, you know, chewing up anything that would be bad for them. Yeah. Jenny would note that the type of beer was not Debbie's preferred brand either. Well, there was less beers back then, maybe, because I don't know if you could tell whether the beer that's left at my house is my beer or somebody else's beer, because I will drink almost any beer. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. For example, this right now is pretty bad. I'm drinking it fast, but I have it. (laughs) We're doing it. Well, and back then it probably was just like Miller. Right. Budweiser. Coors. Coors? Yeah. Yeah. So Debbie's two dogs, Mason and Morgan, were out roaming the yard. Their food and water bowls were empty. Debbie loved these dogs, so it was very unlikely that she would have left without them. And if she was just, like, going out or, you know, going away for the day, she would have at least put them on their runs and given them food and water. Yeah. So it's another red flag here. The kitchen door was locked, but the living room door was not. And inside the house, it was quite a mess. Not necessarily any signs of struggle, but there were like clothes on the floor and things kind of strewn about. And a pair of scrubs was laying in the kitchen. The heater was on high. And again, Debbie was a very neat and tidy person, so she would not just leave these things out. She would have been one that would put the clothes in the hamper, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Not the kitchen. Yeah. To make things even weirder, there was a message on Debbie's answering machine. And this is in, you know, 80, 85, so there were still answering machines. <laughs> not voicemail, folks. And it was an unfamiliar male voice, and he was calling because he was concerned that Debbie had missed several days of work and wanted to make sure everything was okay. And this was pretty odd because Debbie had just been at work the day before. So really, Hmm. she had only missed a few hours of work at this point in time. Yeah, that's weird. And the other thing about this recording is that it was never submitted into evidence. So the investigators went by what the family said was on the recording. So it's kind of one of those weird instances, I guess, in this case. I don't like it. I know. 
And then John, Jenny's stepfather, and his friend Kevin, they walked the property, but they didn't really see any signs of foul play. Did she have a second job that she wasn't showing up to or something? No. Just the job at the VA hospital. Yeah, that's weird. So the group kind of figured, you know, we don't really know what's going on. Maybe she just went out. Maybe she was with somebody. They weren't really very sure, but they fed the dogs. They locked up the house and then they went back to their homes. And it didn't say exactly when, but it does appear that Jenny contacted the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office to report Debbie missing, but she was told that she had to wait 72 hours before they could do anything. Of course. It was the 80s. Right? It's not uncommon. Yeah, at least they're at least saying, like, at that point, not, she's a grown-ass woman, she's probably in Vegas or something. <laughs> and it kind of she, like she needed to blow off some steam. Like, the families, too, are just like, is this weird? Is this not weird? Yeah. We don't know. The point is, is that adults can choose to go missing if they want to. Because yeah. sometimes, mm-hmm. I want to run away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two, three days tops, probably to Vegas. <laughs> Alrighty then. Well, now we know where to look first. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. So I did fall down another small rabbit hole on Reddit in regards to missing persons cases. Reddit is just such a wonderful place. It's amazing. Truly. And I came across this Reddit user and his name was PM me picks of donuts. (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty, sir. All right. And the top part of the thread was cop here. So evidently this Mr. PM me picks of donuts is a law enforcement officer. Oh, oh that's why he likes donuts. Uh. And what I found interesting about his comment was that he indicated that no immediate search will begin unless one of three criteria are met. So the first one is that the person is under the age of 12. The second is they have a mental illness that is preventing them from caring for themselves. Or three, there's a very strong physical evidence of foul play. So if you call the police department, they're not going to go searching for every single person that people believe are missing. A lot of times adults are found in Vegas or (laughs) Or wherever. At the bar. You know. (laughs) The pub. Mm -hmm. The pub. Pub. In Debbie's case, I'm not sure that the beer cans littered in the yard or that the clothes strewn about on the floor would constitute physical evidence of foul play. Mm-hmm. However, I do empathize with this family. There is a degree of separation for the police, obviously, mm-hmm. but not for the family. This is their loved one. They feel like something is wrong. I do wonder how many phone calls. It would definitely depend, I guess, on the location. How many Mm -hmm. times the police get a phone call about a a missing person that's actually not a missing person? Let me see the data. I'm here. I was just taking a nap or whatever. (laughs) So a few years ago here in Washington, a woman went missing after work. So, of course, the police suspected foul play and that the husband was responsible, but it ended up being this really bad car crash. Oh, no. She was pinned in her vehicle for, like, five or six days, like, (gasps) off the road. Oh, And it was actually a bicyclist had noticed some, like, disturbance in the vegetation and, like, stopped and was like, oh, that's weird. And then looked and then saw that this car was off the side of the road. Oh, my gosh. And you couldn't, like, see it from the road, right? They found her and, you know, she she survived and everything, so that was great. But... My mom and my husband were talking about this case, and my mom, in a very Aries and almost Liam Neeson way, was like, I will never stop looking for you. (laughs) I will find you. (laughs) My husband says, oh, I'll put up signs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he doesn't have to worry, because your mom will do all the work. Right? And I'm like, you're going to put up signs? What will they say? Lost wife, if found, <laughs> tell her to bring beer? She <laughs> likes uh, Vegas and uh, naps. <laughs> right? So, anyways, I empathize with this family. I get that they're, they're feeling concerned and they don't really know what to do. And it seems like the police 
don't care. I won't say that they don't care, but they have to prioritize the calls that they get. So an adult person going missing. And at this point, it was just a few hours, right? She had just not checked in at 8 a.m. for her shift. Yeah. The following day is Saturday, December 28th. Debbie's stepfather, John, returns to the property again to take care of the dogs. And there's still no sign of Debbie and nothing seems to be disturbed. So that, you know, the house is still locked up. Everything seems to be fairly normal. On Sunday, right, and the family's growing more concerned each day. So Sunday, there's still no sign of Debbie. Jenny, her husband, John, the family friend, Kevin, and another family friend, Dave Tomlinson, returned to Debbie's property and they wanted to do a more thorough search of like the house and the property. So they're, you know, they're going through stuff and they're looking and Kevin locates Debbie's purse and Debbie's purse was tucked into the corner of her waterbed. What? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not where she would keep her purse. Or like where anyone would keep their purse. Right. Because like if it's your waterbed, you don't want anything sharp on your purse getting anywhere near that because that's a nightmare. That's a lot of water. It's it's also your waterbed. Yeah. And your purse. (laughs) Yeah. Debbie's mom like looks through the purse. There is nothing missing. Everything's in her wallet. So clearly she didn't just like take a trip that she forgot to mention. But again, Jenny and her mom were very close to each other. So, I mean, the worry is just starting to rise exponentially. So Mm. on Monday, December 30th, Debbie, again, did not show up to her shift at the VA hospital. Now we're at the three-day mark. Mm -hmm. So Captain Jack Watts of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department drove out to Debbie's house to take a missing persons report. Jenny, John, Kevin, and some additional friends were already on the property searching again for any clue to where Debbie was. Later that evening, another police officer named William Nickel stopped by Jenny and John's house to let them know that the police would be doing a formal search of Debbie's property the following day. Okay. So now we're one, two, three, four, five, four four days in. Okay. So on Tuesday, December 31st, 1985, the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department deputies and detectives arrive at Debbie's property. Bloodhounds were brought in to assist with the search. And so a bloodhound's sense of smell is a thousand times stronger than humans. And they are very useful when searching for missing persons or for suspects. And I will admit that I spent an unnecessary amount of time looking at pictures of bloodhounds. They're so cute. cute. With their droopy, droopy faces. But they're so good at their jobs. They are. Oh, they're just so cute. I love them. So I read something once. I don't know if they, if all departments do this, but canine units that use dogs for like scent tracking or whatever. Mm-hmm. If they can't find it, the dogs will actually get upset. Mm-hmm. So they, they like, they give them something of like, oh, okay, you, well, you found this, so good job. And then like, that Aww. way the dogs can like rest. Don't get depressed. Oh. Yeah, yeah. They're just good boys, trying to, good boys trying to do their jobs. And girls probably, but yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Boys with an I is a general, yeah. gender yes. inclusive. It is. Unfortunately, nothing of evidentiary value was found during the search. And it is important to note that the police did not conduct a search of the pond that was behind Debbie's house. Why the fuck not? (laughs) It's a good question. Jenny, however, asked the investigators if she could hire her own divers and was given the kind of green light. Hey, if you want to, that's fine. All right. Hmm. There was not a clear description of this pond. According to Jenny, it was small, but not that small. Thanks, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) That, yeah. (laughs) I'm not quite sure what that means. I tried to research it a little bit. I couldn't get an exact size of the lake. I saw some pictures, of, or pond, sorry. I saw some pictures of it, and it seems to be a pretty decent size. And then they did describe it as being around five and a half to six feet deep in places, but it was a relatively shallow pond. Mm-hmm. Hmm. 
So Jenny asked their family friend, Kevin, and Kevin contacted a a friend of his named Gordon Childress, who was a scuba diver, if he would be willing to, to come and search the lake. And Kevin and Gordon uh, agreed and said that they would return the next day with their equipment. So on Wednesday, New Year's Day, January 1st of 1986, Kevin and Gordon arrive at Debbie's property around 12.30 p.m. They did a cursory search around the lake before entering. Some articles indicated that Gordon had located footprints and drag marks in the mud under the water. Ooh. Some articles say they found them along the shore. And I'm not really completely sure here because the sheriff's department never confirmed this. Great. Yeah, you would hope that they were probably under the water if the police said they did a search prior, but you don't know that. Yeah, this would become a point of contention with the family, and there will be many points of contention. Oh, fun. So, Gordon entered the lake at approximately 3 p.m. He was only in the water for about two minutes when he resurfaced. Mm -hmm. Gordon indicated that he found a body inside a rusted 55-gallon drum that had holes in it. Wow. Gordon, Mm -hmm. now I'm getting sus of Gordon. You found that really quick, bruh. Yeah. According to Gordon, the lower portion of the legs and feet were hanging out of the drum, and then Gordon exited the water to let the police do their thing. The barrel would also become a major point of contention for the family, as law enforcement would later deny its very existence. What? Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Hmm. According to Jenny, the investigators did not remove the barrel on January 1st, but told her that they would be coming back the following day to collect it. And Jenny remembered that there had been a drum by the house that they had frequently used for target practice out on Debbie's property. Oh, explaining the holes? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So she walked back up to the cabin and she noted that the barrel was gone, but the imprint of the barrel remained in the dirt where it had been. Keep in mind that an empty 55-gallon drum weighs around 40 pounds, as long as you're not borrowing it from Larissa Schuster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That bitch. Safe to assume. (laughs) Cumberland County sheriffs began the removal of the remains by lowering the water level. So basically, they insert a pump into the lake and then pump the water out to lower it down a little bit. Their divers entered the pond to retrieve the remains. The body was located approximately 33 feet from the edge of the pond and five and a half feet below the surface. That's not even that deep. Why'd they have to lower it so much? I know. I don't know. Men? I don't know. They're like, no, we're not going to dive. You have to lower it by at least a foot before we dive down five feet, even though it's scuba. I don't know. That just seems silly. It's the 80s. Okay. Who knows? (laughs) The body was identified as Debbie Ann Wolf. So was there a barrel or no? Well, we'll get there. Was the family there while the police were like... Yes. So Debbie was fully clothed. She was wearing white leather Nike shoes, white ankle socks, red knee socks, brown corduroy pants, a brown checkered shirt, bra, panties, and then a regulation army field jacket. And this will Damn. become important later, but she's got a lot of layers on. Hmm. You don't need your bra at home, sis. Right. So the friend of the family, Kevin Gorton, made this comment on Unsolved Mysteries, which is what I was watching. Oh, yeah. When I came across this case. And this comment is so creepy, but quote, A typical cold water drowning would be eyes open, mouth open, hands and arms in a very clawed state. You know, just like a fight for life, which was quite contrary to Debbie. Her eyes were closed, mouth closed. Her arms were in a relaxed state. Her whole Hmm. body was relaxed. She just looked like she was asleep, end quote. Uh, This is the family friend that knows a lot about drownings. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right? Okay. I'm guessing a lot of these guys are like ex or retired military. Oh, right. It's a very big military uh, area, too. Yeah. But it was, if you, and we can link the episode of Unsolved Mysteries because he does the interview on there. And, but he just sounds like a a creep to me. Yeah. It doesn't sound great. Unfortunately, we now know a lot about these sorts of things, but we've had the internet and television. (laughs) 
invading our memory and our brains forever. So yeah, we just kind of just sop some of that up like soup. But that's that's what it is like. That's a lot to just come out and say as a civilian who's like, mm, yes, when do you drown? Yeah, it was just kind of bizarre. So on January 2nd of 1986, Dr. William Oliver of the North Carolina Medical Examiner's Office conducted Debbie's autopsy. We've talked about cause and manner of death before. Cause is the specific injury or disease that leads to the death, and then the manner is the determination of how that injury or disease occurred. And there are only five manners of death that are used, natural, accidental, suicide, homicide, and then, of course, undetermined. Dr. Oliver determined that the cause of death was drowning. However, hmm. There was only a half a teaspoon of water in Debbie's upper bronchial area. It's going to be one of my Mm. questions. And there was no froth or foam substance found on or around her mouth or airway. Dr. Oliver reported the manner of death at this time to be undetermined. As long as he didn't say accidental, because it'd be really hard to throw yourself into a barrel and roll it down the side of the road (laughs) into a pond. She was really shwasted. All that beer she doesn't drink. Toxicology reports showed that there were no drugs or alcohol in Debbie's system. Okay. Not her beer. So it doesn't quite sound like a drowning, does it? No. No. Interestingly now, a part of my search history is basically how to drown a person. Oh my god. (laughs) So there you go, Teddy. Your your NSA agent. Yeah. Oh yeah, not not TSA. TSA. TSA needs a lot more money for what they're doing. All right. I I haven't been to the airport in a long time. (laughs) Again, I was curious. So I went down a little rabbit hole. So a person can drown in less than two inches of water, but it takes around a half a cup of fluid to actually drown a person. To like fill their lungs so that they can't get oxygen to their brain anymore? Mm Mm-hmm. But a half a cup equals 24 teaspoons, not a half a teaspoon, which was reported in Debbie's lungs. Yeah. Hmm. And then you consider the fact that there was no foam or froth present, which would mean that Debbie would have needed to be unconscious or deceased prior to the submersion in the pond. She was not breathing when her body went under. Exactly. It all just seems quite suspicious. Yeah. Needless to say, Debbie's family did not agree with the coroner's determination. They felt that Debbie had met with foul play, and they were very critical of the sheriff's department's investigation. Some articles indicated that there was no apparent trauma to Debbie's body. Others stated that there were some abrasions on her fingers. But for the most part, there wasn't any, like, bruising or wounds of any kind. There were a few mentions that a sexual assault kit had been taken, but then later lost by the sheriff's department. Losing very important things. Right. And especially considering the fact that DNA was not widely used back in the 80s. I get that. But still. You took it. Most law enforcement agencies at least collected samples. And then never touched them ever again, which is also bad. But yeah, that's true. But I mean, even nowadays, people are, are, you know, revisiting these cases and using some of that DNA that was collected to solve some of these cold cases. So it's just really unfortunate that the sexual assault kit went missing. The Cumberland County Sheriff's Department theorized that Debbie was out playing with her dogs and she had fallen into the pond and drowned. And into the barrel that was in the pond, or the barrel's not here anymore? So the sheriff's department denies the existence of that barrel. The family does not, but the sheriff's department does. So in their theory, without the barrel, right? Then I guess you could just fall into a pond. You could. But again, Debbie's 5'3", this pond is 5'5". You would think... dogs, I would think, might try to help her too. Right? She was drowning and making a big fuss. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, at least in in my opinion, right, if I was out in my yard and I had a pond and I fell in, right, and, I, and again, this is wintertime, it is cold outside, I do get that, and I know that there's a level of, like, that cold water shock, you know, I get that, but I'm 5'2", so if I'm out in a pond and... I can touch the bottom, even if my, you know, my head is slightly underneath the water, I would paddle my ass and then stand up. She was only 33 feet from the edge of the shore. So if it was an accident, like they were stating, 
And she didn't have any, like, broken bones, so she should be able to paddle. Exactly. You would think that she would have paddled over, stood up, and then walked out of the pond. Which would have also disturbed the surface of the pond. Exactly. Not the surface. The surface of the bottom of the pond. The bottom of the pond. Yeah. So, again... Debbie's family did not agree with this theory. They believed that there was sufficient circumstantial evidence to conclude that this was not an accident. They also believed that the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department had mishandled the entire investigation from the beginning. And honestly, I don't disagree with them. See, I don't know. I'm a little soft on the beginning of it, but... Just wait. Okay. Haha, <laughs> will do. Just you wait. On Sunday, January 5th of 1986, Cumberland County Sheriff Otis Jones called the North Carolina State Bureau of, of Investigation and he asked assistants specifically to look into his department and how they handled the investigation. So he thinks they fucked up, as how I read that. However, the agent that was assigned to review the case, his name was Marshall Evans, he did end up supporting the sheriff's department's theory that Debbie's death was not the result of foul play. He concluded that they were Mm. accurate in their assessment that it was an accident. So let's Mm. talk a little bit about the issues that were raised by Debbie's family. So number one, the beer cans in the driveway. As I mentioned before, Jenny said that these were not Debbie's brand and there was no information as to whether any of these cans were even collected or taken as evidence to be dusted for fingerprints or swabbed for DNA. Not that it would be common in the 80s, but... Fingerprints? Right? Yeah, And also remember that Debbie's toxicology report came back and said that that there was no alcohol in her system. So wouldn't they want to rule out, like, I mean, if she was drunk and fell into the lake, that might be different. Yeah. Right? And then the second was the seat of Debbie's car, right? It was moved Mm. all the way back. So someone much taller must have been in the car And that the car was not in the spot that Debbie normally parked in. And we all get into our, you know, rituals or habits, if you will. So I generally park in the same spot when I pull into my driveway. Mm -hmm. I generally wouldn't park a ways away, right? Mm -hmm. Plus, I've got to unload all my shit and all my six-year-old shit. So I got a lot of stuff to carry (laughs) into the house. (laughs) And then also there was the Christmas presents that were still in the car. So she would have taken those into her house because remember, she was this neat and tidy Mm -hmm. person. So the next one was that Debbie's dogs were left unfed and unattended. And this is a big deal because she loved those dogs. They were her whole life. Mm -hmm. The scrubs that were found in the kitchen were short-sleeved or like summertime scrubs. And Debbie's co-workers would indicate that she had been wearing long sleeve scrubs on the last day that they saw her on 1226. And mm-hmm. then the scrubs that she was wearing that day, right? Because scrubs have different fun patterns and stuff on them. They were mm-hmm. actually never found by her family or the police. Oh, yeah, because she got dressed into something completely different Mm -hmm. before she fell into the pond, too. Or was placed. You know, fell. (laughs) The next thing was the bizarre answering machine message. So investigators would later identify this person of interest as a volunteer from the VA hospital. He did provide the police with an alibi, but he refused the polygraph test. And not too long afterwards, he moved out of state. Oh. So the police did hear this voice message. No. No. They went on what the family had said. So they never collected the tape. It was like erased. Okay. Ugh. It's it's just really, it's it's weird. Okay. But they were able to identify, find out who made the call, I guess based on phone records. Okay, sure. What? Okay. <laughs> there was another person of interest that they looked into, which was another volunteer at the VA hospital. And he was like infatuated with Debbie. He hit on her constantly, but Ugh. he was cleared by police. So then there's Debbie's purse, right? It's wedged into her waterbed, into the corner of her waterbed. And this is just... Fingerprints. Something. Anything. <laughs> anything. A person just doesn't stuff their purse That's in. That's not where you put your purse. 
It's no. Not. And plus, I don't know if you guys have ever owned a waterbed. My parents did growing up. That Groovy. fucking thing is heavy. My mom would ask for help to like put new sheets on. Oh yeah. Because you can't, yeah, water. right. Because that that fucker is heavy. So I mean, it would take considerable strength just to even pull up the corner to be able to stuff something the in purse. there. And you just wouldn't put your purse there. It's a stupid place to put a purse, right? So the next point was the disappearing footprints and drag marks in or near the pond. So the family friend Kevin and then the his friend Gordon the diver they said they saw these things but the police never this was never a part of any sort of evidence or any part of their report so they basically Great. were like no we we didn't see this <laughs> they keep looking well they also missed a gigantic barrel potentially so footprints are much smaller well good point so the next point of contention was the mystery of the missing barrel So, again, the diver, Gordon Childress, said that there was no way it wasn't there. It was there. He saw it. Investigators on the scene told Jenny that they would be picking this barrel up the next day. And then the next day, there's no barrel. And they're like, there's no barrel. What barrel? Exactly. But was the family there when they saw, when the police actually took the body out? Yes. They didn't see that part. No, they were there. And no barrel came out? They did not take the barrel out at that time. They told them they were going to oh. remove it the next day, which is weird. Why wouldn't you just take it while you're collecting the body? While you're there. Down there. While you're already right. down there, too. Yeah. Why did you take the body out of the barrel? Right? Yeah. Out of the Because, like, placement would matter. Is a big one, too. But this is the 80s, so who knows? And then <laughs> Deputy Don Smith had reported to other people of seeing the barrel a deputy for the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. And the department's spokesman, Harold Little, was on record with the local newspaper mentioning the barrel. Okay, this is getting Mm. fucking weird. Right? However, Captain Jack Watts squashed all rumors about the barrel, saying that it was likely that the divers were mistaken and that it was that army jacket that had ballooned around the body. No. They said bullet right. holes. They said he said there were bullet holes in the barrel. So a barrel's just a lot bigger than an. And then army it was jacket. rusted. Mm-hmm. Rust is a different color. I don't know of any army jackets that are maybe red. color in a pond might be hard to distinguish, perhaps. But I think a barrel versus a jacket, we can do that. Also, did they after the police left and didn't get the barrel? Was did anyone go and see if the barrel was still there? No. Ever? No. Gordon, what the no. fuck? I know. Put your fucking scuba suit back on, bruh. And then in the interview with Unsolved Mysteries, Captain Jack Watts covered his ass really well. And his quote was, no one in our department touched a barrel, end quote. Okay. That might act, well, that also seems false. If you got a fucking body out of it, but. Yeah. It just seems hinky. You just like pulled on her ankle and didn't touch like, the barrel at all. It's, a, it's quite a way to say it, too. And if you watch the video of it, like, it sounds hinky as he's saying it. You're like, mm. But was a fucking barrel there or not, sir? Right? That's the question. He doesn't say that. No one touched it, though. He just says... No one touched what, sir? They must have been mistaken. And then none uh, of our personnel touched a barrel. And then he kind of moves on. It's just... It's it. very suspicious. So the next point is that later on, a friend of the family reported that she found Debbie's wool hat on the opposite side of the pond away from the house when she had gone to care for Debbie's dogs. And no one could provide an answer as to why it would be out that far. So her family thought like maybe if she had been taken or was being, you know, taken back to the pond, right, that maybe the hat had fallen off in some sort of struggle. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the next point was the clothing. So we're going to get into the clothes. So I mentioned the clothes earlier. This is a huge point of contention for the family. Debbie's mom, Jenny, actually received the box of clothes two months after they found Debbie's body. And she is going through these clothes, right? So this is the first time she's seeing these clothes. And this is what 
she told investigators afterwards. So number one, the t-shirt that she was wearing was a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt. And evidently, nobody in South Carolina likes the Steelers. And all of her friends and family that were, seems fair. were very adamant <laughs> that Debbie would never wear a shirt like this. Number two, the brown corduroy pants. They were for a person that was six feet tall or more. They were too big, too long, and they were also unzipped. Great. Well, I mean, maybe they were unzipped when they were taken off the body. But that part, but the the gigantic pants Mm -hmm. sticks out to me a lot more here. The bra Debbie was wearing was a 38C. Debbie wore a 34B. I've worn a B and a C, and I still don't really know what size my bra is. But not a 34 to a 38. You get a little wider. That thing will not stay up or stay down. Down. Yeah. Because uh, for a C, from a C to a B, like the inch difference the alone inch on the band, on the band but is going to cause some real issues. It won't It won't hold anything. There is some wiggle room. And mm-hmm. people weren't making bras very well in the 80s, but... Well, there's that. But then if that wasn't... Get if fitted. that wasn't her bra... Where did it, who, why did she have it? Well, this is the point that the that family is trying to make to investigators. Also, my mom would not know my bra size, <laughs> as an aside. But just go through her underwear drawer and see what sizes are in Let there. Let me tell you, don't do that in mine, because I've been on a journey to figure out my bra size. And so, like, there are some Right, but, bees. like, they're probably all pretty similar. They're not going to jump. There are a couple that are 34s that don't fit me anymore, but I think maybe one day I'll be skinny again. I'm keeping them. Uh... But, you know, I have I have a lot of fantasies. <laughs> so the next point was the army field jacket. And this was a big one for the family. And this was also where I found out some other pretty important information that was not included like anywhere else until this point. So this army field jacket, Debbie had one that was her brother's. But that jacket was actually still on her coat hook in the house. And none of her family and friends could identify this particular coat. Not even her boyfriend. Oh, who? Right? This was the first (laughs) mention that Debbie actually had a fucking boyfriend. And I'm like, who is this boyfriend? Where did you come from? Right? So evidently, her boyfriend was a former army criminal investigator. And his Hmm. name was Steve McDonald. And this is like the only mention of him. Scuba Steve. Was that... He was, like, very adamant that this jacket did not belong to Debbie. I feel like this is a cover-up. Right? It's just weird. I was like... That's why the police fucked it up so bad. Because, like, it went over them. The next were the Nike shoes. The Nike shoes were a men's size 6, and then Debbie wore a woman's size 7. And so Debbie's mom, Jenny, was like, these shoes are not hers. They're too big. They wouldn't fit. But Captain Jack Watts would comment that the shoes they found her in, they also found pictures of her wearing them, those same exact shoes. I would say shoes. a men's six, a woman's seven. I don't exactly know how it... Yeah. yeah. that one... I feel like I used to wear a men's six when I was, like, almost a size eight. Maybe? Or was it smaller? I don't remember. Does an army jacket not have, like, the name of the person whose jacket it is on it? In this case, I don't think so. That would have been a really good clue. That would have been really helpful. It's like, Steve. <laughs> yeah. This motherfucker. And then so... How tall was Steve? Did he have worn a nice pair of uh, brown corduroys? I know, right? And just had a... If her boyfriend has size six shoes... Oh, that's a small feet, so he's probably not... I am so he sorry. He probably doesn't fit into <laughs> pants for a six foot yeah. tall person if you have size shorter. <laughs> but those could have been her shoes and his pants. Mm-hmm. That's true. And then the next one was the fact that Debbie and her clothes had been in the pond for six days. And they were not covered in silt or mud. Because she was in a barrel? Well, she was only partially. Remember, she's like head first in the barrel. Yeah. And also, if you're in the water, like, you know, silt and, and mud kind of flow around. Plus, if the barrel is actually true, right, there's holes in the barrel. Oh, yeah. And then the diver, Gordon Childress, said it took a pretty long time for him to be able to clean the silt and mud from his gear. And he had only been in the water for, like, a little bit of time. And he confirmed that this is a really murky, silty type pond. And so the last point of contention is that 
Debbie's body did not show any signs or issues that are typically associated with a cold water drowning. And this was another being big in the one water for, them. for like six days. You know, and again, where they talk about a typical cold water drowning, you would have you would be in kind of like eyes open, mouth open, you'd be fighting to get out. But her body seemed very relaxed. And then mm-hmm. she had no no real physical signs of trauma on, on her body. So if it was an accident of some sort, you would figure, I don't know, some sort of flailing injury or... Yeah. But if she was killed beforehand too, uh, like murdered beforehand, like how do you do that without leaving any sort of trace? That's a very good point, too. So there are a lot of questions. Unfortunately, none of the family's questions or concerns will ever be answered. Dr. Oliver, the medical examiner, would later change the manner of death to accidental. (gasps) What the fuck, sir? Yeah, that's a cover-up. They're all getting paid off by someone in the government. (laughs) The Cumberland County Sheriff's Department has closed this case as an accidental drowning. Rude. Wow. But we're not done yet. Let's talk theories because there are a lot (laughs) of theories. Yeah. And this is another pretty large rabbit hole that I went down. So the first one is in line with the police's, right? Accidental drowning. So let's just talk about this. Seems pretty unlikely, but I acknowledge that a cold water immersion could disorient a person and cause panic that could lead to an unintentional drowning. But again, Debbie didn't have any drugs or alcohol in her they system. There would be thrashing. She would have some sort of other physical injury on her. And also, like I mentioned earlier, this is not a deep pond. This is pretty shallow and she wasn't that far from the shore and so it just seems unreasonable to think that this is accidental i feel like they're putting something together like she was walking in those long pants and tripped and hit her <laughs> head and fell into the barrel and then rolled down the hill into the pond <laughs> and her boob popped out of the bra because it didn't fit and she was distracted by trying to get her boob back in and then she drowned like all those things had to happen <laughs> yeah. in some weird miraculous coincidence Sad, not miraculous is a bad word word to use for that. But yeah, there's no way. I mean, stranger things have happened, but it just, this accidental drowning just seems very unlikely. Just to take into account a lot of the other stuff around the scene, Mm -hmm. which you just have to ignore completely, I guess, if you want to believe this one. Well, and also you have to discount what the other family and friends said. They said there was a sparrow. They said her clothes weren't her own, right? There was these fucking beer cans that were strewn about her yard. That's just not something that she would do. Did they keep the beer cans in police evidence locker or something? Can we do touch DNA on them? There was no fingerprints, no anything taken. Nobody collected these cans, is at least from what, <sighs> I, what I've read. Obviously, I don't have access to their police reports, but... I wish the family members did. Right? It would be nice if, if they... They're like, we've kept them in the freezer Surprise! all <laughs> And so the second theory that I came across was, obviously, Sheriff's Department cover-up. I'm yeah. not 100% sold on this. I feel like... Maybe they just weren't really good at their jobs. And I question their procedures or the lack of procedures. And yeah, none of the information that I could find ever indicated that they did a, you know, like a thorough search of the property. And then yeah, why the fuck would you not drag that pond immediately? Right. Just on the suggestion that there was a barrel. Just the fact that there was a fucking pond. A body in there. Oh. Oh, that too. Before you There's found a the pond. Body. They didn't even right, check right, it right, at first. Right. Yeah. This could be incompetence, I guess. I mean, it is wintertime, right? Or no, it was summertime by the time. No, no, it was wintertime. wintertime. Summertime was the court. Yeah, yeah. But still. It just feels like this pond was like the elephant in the room almost. They're like, I don't want to get in the pond. It's cold. So the next theory, and this one, I'm going to go a straight up no on this one. Straight up (laughs) fucking no. So the next theory is that she died by suicide. And this one, just fuck no. There was some some valid points, but I'm like, again, how do you end up, if the barrel's true, right, how do you do that with the barrel? But anyway, I'm just going to say straight up fucking no on this theory. 
Yeah. That's my opinion. I think she would have I taken agree care now. of the dogs before. She would have found another home for them. She would have done something more to care for them if that was her intention because she loved those dogs. There was no way she would yeah. just let them be roaming about. If you wanted yeah. to die by suicide, uh, I think trying to drown yourself is a really hard way to do it. In a barrel? Especially, or if there's not a barrel, just in a pond that's not very deep, like your body fights to survive. And there was nothing in her system. And she's also, she has firearms in the house, right? Because they they often would do, you know. Oh, yeah, they shot the barrel. Exactly. So she has access to She's also a fucking nurse. She could have just stolen some good shit. Right? It just seems very unlikely. So I'm going to say this is a big fat fucking no, in my opinion. Especially to do it so, to be so peaceful at the end. Mm -hmm. Your body reacts when you're drowning if you want to die. I feel like your body's still like, fuck this. There's that little lizard in your brain that wants to live. Yeah, it's your body saying, no, 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 this is not right. Hold on a second. No. Do our lizard brains have names too? Like our NSA agents oh, have names. Oh, I'm going to call mine Caleb. Caleb? That's a good Aww. name. Caleb is my lizard brain. Okay. <laughs> so we have a, a friend of ours. His name's Caleb, but we call him Lobe. Lobe. We're so good for the brain. Right? Oh, I love it. That is good. The last theory I'm going to bring up, and this one is a deep rabbit hole. So if you choose to go in and look at this case, this is probably one of the biggest theories, is kidnapping, rape, murder. So in this theory is that something happened, some some foul play happened between Debbie and somebody or some persons, right? And that she was taken away from her house and raped and kept for a few days. And then after the family had done like the initial search, then they came back and put her body into the pond. That's so risky. That's so fucking risky. It is. She wasn't as dirty as she should have been if she had been in the pond for six days. And so I think that's what kind of gives this a little bit of merit. It seemed like it was that deep. Like, you might have been able to see it. Right? Well, it is a really murky murky pond. And in wintertime, too, like, I don't know. I don't think you'd be able to really see into it very much. And then the other point in this one is that because of her car, right? So let's say Debbie had met up with a friend to have a drink, let's say. And then this altercation happened. And then they drove Debbie and her body back to her house. And then dumped her in the pond. Also drank a bunch of beer. Yeah. Well, hmm. I had to stop at the gas station to pick up this beer. Because right. it wasn't Debbie's. But right. Also, if you were like, let's just say like something happened and this was an accident, an accidental death somehow. Like they maybe engaged in some sort of activity and then, I don't know, something happened. She banged her head. They were into some sort of like S&M type thing and she suffocated. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just theorizing. But yeah. let's say it was an accident. And so then that person takes her back to her house in her car and then is like, what the fuck do I do? I'm going to get drunk and figure out what to do with this body. And then I'm going to dress her in this random set of clothes that may or may not belong to her. I don't Leave know. a weird message that may or may not exist, I guess. The beer bottles and the clothes bother me a lot in this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in this kidnap, rape, murder theory, right, because they did a, a rape test and there was, in some article said that they believed that semen was present. So that's why, the, how the rape kind of, the rape theory came mm-hmm. in. There was suspects for this theory. So the first was one or possibly both of the volunteers from the hospital. Great. Oh, well, I'm going to put Kevin and, and Clyde or whatever his scuba diving friend is. Steve? Steve's the boyfriend. Oh, Gordon? Gordon. Steve's on the list, too. Yes. So Steve, the boyfriend, is on the list. And I mean, there was almost no information on this dude. And then the last one was the diver, Gordon. That, dude, you found her body pretty fucking quick. And then was Kevin the one that did the interview about what a drowning looks like? Yes. Yes. Because then it's kind of like, those two together, I would clump as one. Steven. Right. And I guess mystery person. Are the volunteers both of them? One or both. But they were both cleared by the police. Although. They were. They never really did time of death on this body, though, if they were saying it might have been added to the lake days later. But the death certificate says December 26th, so the day that she did not report to work initially. Okay. 
those are the theories that I have. Do you guys have any other theories that you think might be plausible in this case? I think Steve did it. I would it. <laughs> closest to Steve partially because he was a law enforcement officer in the army and mm-hmm. interacting with the law enforcement office of the county. And there's nothing about him. Nothing. And that's, that's the person that they always scrubbed. look at. Like They always look at mm-hmm. the partner. I do kind of feel like we might have been just shitting on Kevin a little bit. He might have just been trying to be helpful. True. Watch the episode, though, because you're like, mm, I, I do want to watch the episode, though, because I'm just like, that's a lot to say, Kevin. I've got the link in there. It's the first case in that episode. So it's like the first like 14 minutes or something of that particular show. But it's interesting and it definitely caught my attention. But And it's surprising Gordon did find her so quickly. But maybe there's an obvious place to put a barrel and that was the place. Or maybe he did have see those footprints and drag marks. Oh, yeah, that were on the, if they were not underwater. Right? You would just follow those and that would be easy too. Sure. It's also like, what is Kevin and Gordon's relationship with her? She's like, he's like their parents' friend. Kevin is their parents' friend. And then Gordon was a friend of Kevin's, not necessarily associated with the family. They just called him because he had yeah. scuba diving experience. Yeah. Hmm. But yeah. So that is the case of the mysterious death of Debbie Wolf, and that is what I have for you this week. Well, I'm glad that they did find her body, at least, Mm -hmm. for her family. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's so weird. But yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of fucking questions here. Oh, yeah. What if it is someone close and they're like, they're going to search the pond, but not until this day? I should go put her back now. Right? Well, There's a lot of that, like, yeah. And then... The police were also just like, hey, we'll do it tomorrow for a lot of these things. So the police really like to do stuff the next day. So they did give time. Well, that was another yeah. part of things. the police cover-up that it might have been somebody within law enforcement and that they were giving that person the opportunity to do it. Yeah. I mean, I would think it's more likely to be Steve than some random person in law enforcement, unless she had any connection to law enforcement. But, I mean, maybe Steve is innocent. Maybe. I don't know. It's There's so many questions. This will never be resolved. And the saddest part about this is that almost all of her family members have now passed. So there really oh. is absolutely mm. no closure for them in their lifetimes. Which is just very right. disappointing. Yeah, because it was a long time. I mean, the case is almost as old as I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thick. So. And I hurt my back when I sleep. So. Yeah. Y'all do the math. So for astrology, we don't have a murderer, but I Meh. was able to do a needle chart for Debbie. And she was born on 619 of 1957. She's a Gemini. Gemini. Well, she did sound like fun with all of her presents she gave her mm-hmm. mom. <laughs> and she's also a Pisces moon. Aww. I thought I would share some of the positive traits of a Gemini sun and Pisces moon because I am also a Gemini sun, Pisces moon. <laughs> all right, oh. this works. So she can express herself easily. She learns quickly. She's welcoming. She's gentle. She loves to travel and loves intellectual work. She's imaginative. She's got sharp insights. She's impressionable, but she's gentle, warm, and humorous. That last part especially seems like it describes her a lot. Yeah, I think so. The humorous, definitely. And gentle and warm. Like, I think she sounded like she was a good nurse, too. And yeah. She had a good personality. I I just love that she got her mom's sex dolls. I know. That is so... That's hilarious. That was the Gemini son. Ha ha, mom. <laughs> I got you. Uh, that's... Yeah, that was the Gemini son for sure, Sus. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time, mom. Yep. <laughs> But that is what I have for astrology. I do have a couple of little tidbits for next week, unless, Sarah, you have any astrology for us. I don't because I've lost track of when we're posting these. So I do have two things coming up. This episode is actually going to air on March 21st, which is my dad's birthday and the first full day of spring, which he always commented on. He's like, I'm a spring baby. The first full day of spring. 
All right. It's nice. I like the first full day of spring. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, March 22nd, Mars and Aquarius is going to be square with Uranus and Taurus. And this is a big womp womp. This is going to be a no good, very bad day, folks. Yay! No! Stay at home if you can. (laughs) Don't interact with people if you can. Exactly. On this day, emotions are going to get the best of us, and it may even cause some tantrums, so... Ooh. Because I have a six, almost seven-year-old, I'm like, the fuck? Oh, that might hit you. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we not? I'll be two weeks off my period by then, so I should be pretty mellow, but... And then on Wednesday, March 23rd, Mercury in Pisces is going to be conjunct with Neptune in Pisces. And again, Mm. conjunct just means that both the planets are in the same sign. And this is going to be a day of where you need to be very careful of people who are trying to sweet talk you. Ooh, that Mercury in Pisces. Yeah. I see here what we're getting at. You are going to be very vulnerable to manipulation on this day. So you really want to focus on people's actions and not their words. We are very dreamy and very, um, we like to believe the best in everybody, Mm -hmm. right? So that makes sense. Oof. Yeah. So that is episode 49. Boop, boop. And I just finished the background on this. And it's a bell! How do you do this every I don't know. fucking week? It's I don't so know, gorgeous. I love it. Thanks. Oh my god. That's amazing. I was trying to make it more gray and dreary, but this blue this turned blue out a little is, more on the blue. It's kind of happy. Yeah. But uh <laughs> that's all right. We we can all use a little bit of happiness in our lives. But yeah, so again, welcome to South Africa. Thank you so much for listening. I will try to get back on my train of getting to those states that we are looking for listeners in. But if you want to connect with us at all, we are on Twitter at True Trine. We're on Instagram, True Crime Trine, Facebook, TCT Podcast. You can email us directly. No one has emailed us about Joe Metheny. So I'm thinking maybe we didn't Uh, talk about him. I don't think we did. So you can keep your money. But, like, they haven't really been emailing us much That's anyway. That's true. We have been getting some insurance quotes, though, so if you guys need to check those out. I know I'm looking for insurance. We can forward you something. Right. Is it life insurance? It is. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, hey, you like murder. Because <laughs> I don't even get those to my actual emails. So I know. Maybe this. <laughs> I guess it's Teddy trying to tell me something. Teddy's like, are you are you up to date on your um, insurance? Yes, narrative? right. Uh, you can email us directly. We would love to interact with you. It's truecrimetrying at gmail.com. And then please check out our website. It's super cool. www.truecrimetrying.com. Big swig. <laughs> I got me right in what I was going to say. Bye. 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 Music for our podcast was handcrafted by the talented and creative minds of Mike Warren and Pete Ortega. Our artwork was imagined and skillfully designed by the lovely Sarah Guest. As for production, well, they call me post-production. Show notes are available upon request. Just email truecrimetrine at gmail.com. Join us again next week for another tantalizing episode.